Welcome to the third season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and in this season, I'll be sharing conversations with educators and leaders who are making schools and classrooms more phenomenal than ever before by implementing community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment practices that promote agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. I am honored to share these conversations of innovation and passion with all of you. Thank you so much for listening in. Every teacher dreads the question, why do I have to read this? Last season, Chris Devani joined me on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast and shared her CYA, Curriculum You Can Anticipate Planning Framework, and how the six T's of topic, tasks, time, targets, text, and tending all come together to create engaging learning experiences for students and teachers. Today, Chris is back. She is joining me to take a closer look at the role of text in promoting student agency, equity, and understanding. Hi, Chris. Welcome back. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here. Oh, this is going to be a great conversation. I just want to say that um, your latest book, Why Do I Have to Read This, is a hit. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I hope you're getting some great feedback, but every teacher that I've shared it with has loved it. And they love the voice, they love the authenticity, and they have found a lot of connections between your text and phenomenal teaching. And so in some ways, they've kind of become cousin texts for some of the teachers in schools where I'm working. And one aspect that both books really, really illustrates is the importance of text from text selection during unit planning to access to choice text for inquiry or for differentiation and independent reading. And then to all the ways in which a good text or interesting text or diverse text can promote cultural sustainability and understanding. So I just want to thank you. It's just been a great tool. Oh, thank you for sharing it. And what a compliment to that. It's a, it's a, uh, cousin text to, um, PBC's work. I, that's a very, I appreciate that. So today's conversation that I'm looking forward to is really kind of what are we seeing in schools and classrooms when it comes to kids reading? What are we noticing? Yeah, it's just it's a it's a whole new world that we're coming back to, I think, after the pandemic and watching Mm -hmm. teachers work so hard to just um, connect back with kids and establish you know, relationships and rituals and routines. And, you know, I think people are working really hard to just keep their head above water uh, and also meet the needs of kids while they're juggling all these demands that are put upon them. It's, 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 it's trying times, I think, for a lot of people that are uh, slogging through day by day with kids. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I've had a lot of conversations with teachers just in terms of kind of how do we reestablish stamina and that interest in either independent reading or some teacher-directed or teacher-invitational reading and text, that stamina has kind of taken a hit in the last 18 months or so. Stamina with reading, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, when you're so busy, you've got to sometimes, I think, stop and just determine what's important. And so one of the things, and I know if people have heard me before, they're going to get sick of this comment, but sort of my bottom line for kids is increasing their minutes of reading, writing, critical thinking, talking every day, like doing that purposeful work. Uh, John Guthrie will probably mention again tonight, today, but um, 
he's a researcher and one of his studies says that kids who read 67 minutes a day tend to score 98 percentile on test scores and not that that's a big you know drive for me but that idea of 67 minutes is so manageable it doesn't have to be all at once it can be throughout the day and so for me i think uh, some of that other stuff that's thrown on our plate i want to just kind of clear that off so i can get kids in a book again, because you're right. I think they have lost that stamina being online. I think they've done other things instead of just actually holding a book in their hand and reading or holding an article in their hand or holding a piece of nonfiction. So that stamina piece is something I think we've got to just sort of slog back to getting, um, you know, building it up again. Absolutely. And I think that's interesting to think about the ways in which we can get about getting those texts into kids' hands. Um, I think the system right now is putting so much pressure on teachers to catch kids up and also providing very, very little planning time. And so one thing that teachers have expressed to me is that they feel like they're falling back on some habits from before, that um, offering reading with questions, like question packets, or kind of that comprehension kind of drill and kill, if you will. Um, Some teachers have felt that they don't have enough time to offer choice. And um, they're feeling a little bit driven by the resource rather than by driven by their own planning. Have you experienced that as well? Yes, I have. And I think, I think you know, there was a question I used to ask my seniors if when we were reading some dystopian literature. And I would always say, okay, how does fear drive the decisions you make? And I think right now, some of us are living in this sort of panic of how do I get my kids caught up? How you know, I don't have time to even take care of my own children. What's going to come, you know, off the plate? Can I grab this comprehension stack of questions and just give those to my kids? And I think that, that, um, you know, when we're kind of falling back onto some of these teacher made products, it gives us a little bit of control, gives us a little bit of like, okay, I've got this handled. But I think if we look deeper, it's, 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 it's not the best thing for kids. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you believe to your core, I'm inferring, that if kids are going to get to be better readers, writers, critical thinkers, skiers living in Colorado, you got to actually engage in that activity. And so when we kind of fall back on um, packets of comprehension questions or programs that are teacher-proofed, it's oftentimes not serving the kids in the way we know deep in our hearts serves them best. And I think sometimes maybe that fear drives us to, you know, well, what my principals say, how am I going to get kids caught up? Are they really behind? You know, so it's all, all those things we're wrestling right now. That's so messy. It's so messy. And in, you know, planning conversations and coaching conversations with teachers, they're expressing the same thing that that the time is so limited. And some of these resources felt helpful in the beginning of the year, but now even teacher efficacy is taking a hit. They're not feeling that creative energy. They're not seeing that passion with their kids. And so I think this conversation is really timely in terms of what have we learned from the pandemic? And then, you know, what do we what do we need to do to really help our kids re-engage with text and get better and and bring back that joy for teachers? So I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, what have we learned? Let's start there. And then let's dive into what do we know? Well, I would tell you two things I've learned during this pandemic. I am never going to drive across town during rush hour to do a 45-minute in-service. It's going to be virtual. <laughs> <So> that's a <laughs> 
that's a good thing, right? So uh, I'm never going to get on a plane and fly without a mask because I don't want any more colds. And I think that's another thing. Um, but thinking about you know, what we learned as far as teaching goes with kids, I, I think I've learned kids are less compliant right now. Like they have lived 18 months with, you know, virtually where they could just shut their screen off or they could just not show up and the world did not stop. And so if we're solely relying on this behavioral engagement of just, you know, threatening kids with grades or, you know, you got to do this because they'll get ready for high school. I, I just don't think kids are buying that anymore. And that we've got to really kind of think about, you know, why does what we're teach, teaching matter? What, what's the kids need to know? Um, how are we giving kids real work to be done? I mean, Lord knows there's so much work that needs to be done to make this world better, to make our state better, to make our town better. Like we got to start letting kids engage in some of that work. Absolutely. So if we think about that idea of behavioral engagement isn't probably where it's at right now. Um, we have kids who come back a little savvier and a little sassier, and we really need to double down on the emotional and the cognitive engagement in order to get the juices flowing, if you will. So when you think about this year and you think about planning, you know, teachers across the country have done such a gorgeous job of welcoming, welcoming kids back, establishing community, developing rituals and routines. Now I feel like there's more cognitive energy for planning. So what do we know? What do readers need to get better? And what might we avoid? Well, I mean, I, I, I think this idea that you brought up initially is this idea of volume, like just reading. You know, Laura Robb talks about it a lot. Steph Harvey and Ann, Annie Ward have a new book out with two of teachers that they work with. This idea of like, okay, we got to we got to increase kids' volume, um, and I think that's something Penny Kittle talks so much about in Book Love and all the work she's doing. And um, you know, it goes back to got three sixty seven minutes again. How do we just give these kids opportunities to read? text. And then, um, you know, I think that volume piece, if we, if we really want kids reading volume, they, we've got to build in some choice. There's got to be some options, right? Like for me to say to a striving reader, oh my gosh, this book is so cool. You got to read it. You know, it, that might not be enough. There's got to be multiple choices that kids can, um, you know, test, I guess, you know, and see what they like. And um, I'm running into so many readers lately that just really don't even know what kind of reading they like, right? They don't, they don't know if they like graphic novels or they don't know any authors and they don't, you know, and I don't think this is a new thing, but I think I'm seeing it more and more with kids who were not striving readers. So I think presenting them with this menu that's connected maybe in some organizational way around a theme or around a topic, I think is really, really important. So let's talk a little bit about the connection between volume and choice. What are some suggestions that you have for increasing volume? I mean, you mentioned choice, that we want students to have that sense of ownership and control over what they're reading, but volume requires minutes. Where might teachers find those minutes in, in their block or in their day or in their class period if they're in short periods? What are some suggestions you have for upping those minutes? So I think one of the things that helped me was um, thinking about what the kids were going to read during class time. Um, mm -hmm. When I when I began as a teacher, I was always thinking about okay, what am I going to do, 
And I've always, I think, been a proponent of workshop model. I think I was introduced with PBC, you know, as a brand new teacher and Lucy Calkins work and Donald Graves. And so I knew I wanted to have workshop model, but I think initially I started thinking about, okay, here's what I'm going to do to keep the kids busy. And Mm -hmm. that kind of switching of like, okay, what are the kids going to read? What are they going to do? What am I going to do with, you know, Luis, who maybe doesn't like this text? Can I have a backup text that he might read? What am I going to do with Caleb, who reads for 30 seconds and then has to go to the bathroom? Like kind of just that idea of anticipating um, who might disengage, what might cause them to disengage. I think that's why where those CYA strategies come in. Just saying to a kid, sit down and read for 40 minutes is, is not, um, I think, I I think that's naive for most kids, right? There's some readers that could sit down for two hours and read. But in a classroom, that idea of building in those minutes, we really want to think about some structures to increase work time. And I think that's where that choice comes in because not every piece of text is going to, you know, not one piece of text is going to meet everybody's needs. Um, And I also think about this idea of, of, of relevancy, right? Like, why should they care about this? Why, why should they spend their time reading this information? Um, who, who are they doing work for? Is it just to you know, answer questions so their teacher doesn't get mad at them and nag them about a grade? Is it to share information with people who really need it? So I'm working at an alternative high school in, um, right outside of Denver, and these kids are working on... Um, it's a health class and they're reading about stress and how, you know, what, what, are, what are the signs of stress, what causes stress and then how to mitigate it. And they're writing letters to somebody they love that, mm. that maybe they can teach and help. Here's what I've learned about stress. Here's what you can do about it. Here's what it does to your body if you don't start to manage it better. So that idea, like they're kind of, it's, it's bigger than just a grade. It's bigger than just getting through today. But I think we want to create these readers that um, read for a for a purpose that that they see reading as a way to empower them, um, and so I think that's that piece of, of like relevance and why they're doing it. I think that's really interesting to think about work time actually as work time and time for readers to be engaged in reading, and that it's okay to have opportunities in our classes for kids to be just reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I go ahead. Well, I just heard a principal not too long ago say, "I hate going in this teacher's room. It's so boring because every time I go in there, the kids are are, are reading." And I said, <laughs> "Well, it's not boring if you go and listen to the teacher having conferences with the kids. Like, go and listen to that um, that conversation because that's where this differentiated teaching is happening." And so, I think sometimes we have to help educate our administrators as to why we're doing it, if we can. If we can have that work time, not only just reading, but also kids are doing writing. Like if they have some sort of choice in what they're doing during that work time, that helps as well. Because sometimes you don't want to sit down and read. Um, Sometimes you don't want to sit down and just write. But if you have that choice where you can go back and forth. So these kids on the stress test or the stress class there, they've got articles. So as they write, if they get stuck and don't know what to say, they can go to a to a mentor text, or they can go to an informational piece to build some background knowledge, and then they can go back. It's sort of this, like, you know, re- it really is work time, because you're getting to pull, like, okay, what do I need? What tools do I need to get back in to work on this project that I'm creating for somebody mm-hmm. besides just the teacher? Because they know the, ki- the kids know their teachers love them. 
But if they're giving it out to the world somehow, that I think creates um, agency and urgency for kids to actually do work during during that block of time. Absolutely. And th- another structure that I've seen, you know, this idea of really providing, you know, meaningful work and meaningful text to read and meaningful products to write during work time. But in addition to that, I have a number of teachers that I'm working with who are thinking about their block schedules different in a different way. And they've started to incorporate some choice independent reading at the very, very beginning of class. And it's only about 15 minutes, but it was interesting because it was a number of different teachers from a number of different schools across the country who had this concern. My kids aren't reading. My kids haven't held a book in 18 months. We haven't really been able to expose kids to genres and authors and all the cool nonfiction that's out there and all of the different you know, types of ways in which poetry is being published and graphic novels. And so kiddos who were in fifth grade and now are in seventh grade missed a whole era of texts that they might've gotten exposed to or had an opportunity to learn more about. And so I have some middle school teachers and some high school teachers who are beginning to incorporate independent reading at the beginning of their block. And it's a choice time for kids to jump in and read something of their choice. And teachers are also engaging in reading and they're conferring and they're getting to know their kids in a different way. And it's interesting because almost every teacher felt very nervous that this was maybe going to work or it wasn't going to work at all, that there really wasn't going to be a middle ground. And what's interesting is they're reporting great success, that the kids are finding some some new things to read. They're using the classroom library in a different way. They're going to their school library. They are finding some digital text, even though they're trying to really go with more paper-bound text. Um, they're bringing in the newspaper. They're bringing in some periodicals. And kids are coming right in, settling in, and just soaking into whatever it is they're reading. It's been really, really fascinating. It just, I'm smiling as you're saying this because it's it's kind of old school, right? It was like yes. an old school workshop that we used to do where kids would have that time to just read. And um, I love that, 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 that that's a, a practice that was effective 20 years ago and it's still effective now, right? It's that time on task. But also I think that joy um, yes. that, that, that maybe is coming back into the classroom because I think there's been a lot of, you know, people have suffered these last 18 months. And I think some kids are suffering in the classroom who aren't getting to do some of this purposeful work and having some choice. You know, I'm just, I I think of the kids filling out comprehension packets. That's suffering. That's, you know, and I, I, if we could flip that, right. And, Mm -hmm. and work on student generated questions, questions that kids really care about. I think that would also help um, kids, um, you know, become better readers. And there's research behind that. Pearson and Dole did studies 20 years apart and found the same data. The kids who generated their own questions tended to have greater growth and comprehension than kids who merely answer comprehension questions. And so, you know, there's some old practices that we sort of forgot about that we need to, mm-hmm. you know, dust, you know, blow the dust off of those practices and bring them back because we don't have to be so fancy. We don't have to have something so structured because. There's just these good things like actually reading a book in a quiet space, something that kids could look forward to. Um, Even our striving readers, if we find choice text and the right text for them. It's interesting. So we think about, you know, the conversation that we're having and the four 
ideas that were just mentioned, volume, choice, relevancy, and student-generated questions. So you're right. We could just kind of, like you said, blow the dust off of those and reinvigorate those practices as classroom rituals and routines and norms are reestablished. Yeah. I mean, right. There's some things, you know, my dad said to me one time, he goes, yeah, I finally figured out what you do. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, it's like, uh, like there's certain things you do when you're, when you're a good reader, just like there's certain things you do when you're a good golfer, they never change. And I thought, yeah. Right. He goes, he goes, yeah, you got to bend your knees when you putt the ball. And when, when you're reading, you got to talk to yourself in your head and talk back to the text. And I thought, yeah, that's really true. And I think the same is true for us as teachers. There are some of these standbys that we think sometimes are too easy or they don't work anymore, but but you know, choice drives engagement and relevancy gives kids a reason to work and they get to discover, you know, if they're if they're allowed to ask their own questions, it propels them to read. And so all of those three things really kind of build that volume that we're going for to help kids become better readers, which I think is our goal at the end. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd love to read too, right? We want that as, yeah. as much as we can. Not every kid's going to love to read, but maybe they'll see the power in being able to read well. And maybe not hate to read. There you go. I, that's it. We don't want kids hating to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we think about what we've been talking about today, it makes me think a little bit more about your book. And about those six T's and the way that they come together to really increase engagement and opportunities for students to have high ownership and high agency. And so, you know, we think about schools and classrooms right now and in the work that you're doing in the health classroom. And a lot of the teachers I'm working with are finding renewed energy with some unit planning. That this has been a year where the, you know, starting the school year has been a considerable heft. It's been a lift. But now finding that energy and that joy and that spark for teachers in unit planning. And so I'm wondering if we could think a little bit about text through the lens of unit design. Yeah, you know, I think, thank you for bringing that book back. I I think when I was writing that, I was really kind of thinking about how the best reading strategy in the world isn't going to work if kids are disengaged. And that sort of brought me, right? And so that sort of brought me back to this idea of unit design. And of course, you know, those of us who know Debbie Miller, to know Debbie is to love Debbie. Um, You know, she talks about how as teachers, we have to like own the units we teach. Donald Graves said years and years ago, he said, you know what? creating gives teachers energy. We have to have some creativity in the work that we're asking kids to do because then we have some ownership in that as well. And so, you know, um, for me, thinking about a compelling topic, something that um, is maybe local or something that is relevant. I've been working with science teachers and this summer, Michelle, you'll remember this, we had the most polluted air in the world one Saturday afternoon because of the yes. fires from California. And so these science teachers have been using that to study um, the carbon cycle, to study temperature inversions, to think, to try to f- be able to use scientific language to name what's what, what's happening with these forest fires and how can three states away be affecting what's the air we're breathing in Colorado. And I think that's compelling when you start with the greenhouse effect versus why, why, why can't we see downtown from a mile away when normally that's beautiful, blue, clear sky. 
So mm-hmm. I think finding compelling topics for kids to study that we can hook our standards and skills and strategies to, um, and then finding compelling text that connects to those topics, and then finding compelling tasks that are worthy of their time that will help us see the targets that we're going for. I think we just we just got to help renew this like joy of discovery and learning about this world around us instead of just kind of slogging through every single day. So that brings up this question then of where do we find the text that kids will read? Where do we find text that will complement our standards that connects to these compelling texts? I know a lot of teachers who are really excited about the idea of text sets, if you will, but they're not exactly sure how to put them together and where do we find resources in a timely manner? So one of the things that's helped me is to think about, okay, I would rather have kids reading, like their minutes, I'm you know, going back to those minutes again, mm-hmm. than having every kid read every article. So I got to work with a teacher about five states away and she was doing a short story unit and her focus was that every single kid read these five short stories. And it was like the old school short stories, like the monkey's paw and, um, you know, egg round post stories. And then there was one, the jungle, right? It's like old ones that probably all of us read in ninth grade. And so her focus was, okay, every kid has to read all of those. And what I was really kind of helping her, I was hoping to kind of push her a little bit to say, okay, could you bring in choice of all different lengths of short stories, more modern short stories, and um, have kids pick the ones that that they want. And so that idea of minutes reading versus everybody reading the same thing has helped me to kind of broaden how I look for text. Okay. So I'm looking for infographics. Um, mm. I'm looking for articles. I'm looking for graphic novels. Um, so I'm helping a teacher right now um, who's, she's a pre-service teacher at Metro. And um, she wants to do this unit around this novel called pet and i said okay well can we branch that out a little bit maybe that's a choice in your tech set so we started talking about afrofuturism and we found this article from the smithsonian um, about octavia butler and then we i thought of the book kindred and then i thought well is there a graphic novel of kindred and yes there is a graphic novel um so this idea of i think going just going beyond just designing activities around a novel, can we find text around a topic? And Google is so great right now, right? You can just, you know, I put in things like, you know, what's so great about Afrofuturism? And then articles come up and then I hit images and all these infographics come up and you start to be able to just find text pretty quickly. my my goal is to is you know to find five or six pieces that kids can choose from and mm-hmm. and then build on that right if if mm-hmm. you know if you're going to teach the great gatsby every year you start this year with three different choices that kind of connect back so if gatsby is the hub of our wheel that we're all going to read and kind of kids are going to be exposed to maybe we summarize a little bit. Maybe we let them read a little bit and talk to their peers. Maybe we help them listen to it on on Audible. But we're going to all be exposed to Great Gatsby. But then this idea of like, okay, what are some texts connected to themes? 
Um, you know, do we do we have the, the compelling question of what makes us happy, or what's the dark side of the American dream, or you know, is from those themes, I think you can then find choice text that's nonfiction that will give kids context for that setting. So I think you know, just that that wheel idea with the hub. The hub of the wheel is the anchor text or the fulcrum text or whatever you want to study. It could be a piece of nonfiction even. And then the spokes are different texts that somehow connect to that one in the middle. When mm-hmm. I've got that sort of framework in my head, text starts to just fall into my laps. If I could come up with a few provocative questions, more text just falls into my lap. Mm-hmm. So really, we're thinking about the life-worthy connection. So whatever is at that fulcrum point or whatever that anchor text might be, we need to think about how is this life worthy? Why does this matter for my students? How does this connect to my students' culture and background? How does this connect to issues in our community? How does this connect to the world? Right. Yeah. And I think that's something that teachers have to sit down and think about. And so I've been pushing my pre-service teachers. This uh, one student is writing about, she's doing this unit around Pride and Prejudice. And so I'm like, okay, you're going to have a couple of kids who just really love that, but you're going to have some that do not want to read it. Like, why should they read that? And she said, Stevani, this is just, it's still happening. It's still happening. The themes in the book. And then she refers to the YA novel Pride and she shows how that's connected. And so I think she hasn't been able to articulate it yet, but like for me, we read literature because we can see modern day reflected in those Mm. characters. We can watch how they respond. We can learn safely from their lessons. We can see other options. Now, if there's a bunch of math teachers listening to this, they're probably rolling their eyes. But I think that idea of each one of us having to take responsibility for really articulating why this text is worthy of them. How is it going to help them think about the world more broadly and what you know? How does it connect to the world outside of, of, of school? And I, and I think when I start pulling in nonfiction to go with literature, kids really start to see that. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's just just typing in modern day um, uh, Julius Caesar's, like if you're reading Shakespeare, you know, m- modern day Othello's. You know, leaders. These articles on leadership comes up where they're referring to to the Shakespearean work. It's 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 that idea of like we got to go bigger. We got to go bigger than just literary analysis, because you know what, that's, that's a pretty small vision. So let's flip it a little bit. You've been thinking, especially with an anchor text from a language arts perspective and the language arts curriculum. And earlier you mentioned some of the work that you're doing in a health class. So what if I am the math teacher or the social studies teacher or you know the science teacher or the health teacher, and I'm dedicated to these 67 minutes a day how do I bring text into my units or into my standards, if you will, that are meaningful and life-worthy for kids and allow me to, to reach the, the goals and the objectives of my, my discipline? Well, I think that, that I, so let me just use an example because that seems to help. I'm working with a teacher um, teaching, it was a ninth grade genetics class or maybe it was 10th mm-hmm. grade. But one of the one of the anchor texts that we used was Queen Victoria's pedigree chart. Oh, so it was a model. Yeah, it was a model. So they could start to learn about hemophilia and how it passed down and what could you discover. And if you know anything about Queen Victoria, um, one of her children, I think, was birthed by a surrogate. And so that's where this like break in 
the hemophilia is. And so that idea of like, okay, let's look at this model. This is going to be our anchor text that we're going to study. Then we're going to read a little bit. We're going to do, you know, a little bit of work with pendant squares. And then we're going to go back and look at our anchor text again to see what we know now. Um, and so in a science class, we often call that the, a model, or it could be a section from, um, a, um, you know, some a textbook, if you will, or it could be a powerful infographic. But I think that anchor text is that we keep, we, we come back to it mm -hmm. and, and add more thinking. Um with this health class right now, we're just trying to build background knowledge around stress. And so um, we don't really have an anchor text per se. We're looking at what causes stress and then how to mitigate it. And so, so the anchor text really is, now, I guess the anchor text is this really complex infographic that we have that we're trying to figure out about the anatomy of stress on the body. That's the text we seem to keep coming back to. Um, I think in, in a social studies class, it could be a primary primary document. Uh, it could be mm -hmm. um, a historical recount from somebody or maybe from two people with different experiences. So maybe, you know, like a, um, a Native American or indigenous tribe and then um, settlers looking at that same event from different perspectives. And we read all around that, those two texts to build background knowledge. So I think it's just this little thing we got to think about. What do we believe? If you're a teacher who believes what you have to say matters most, mm -hmm. then you're probably not going to be worried about bringing text into that classroom. But if you are somebody who believes that teaching kids how to construct meaning is going to give them power in the world, then you're going to build time into your classroom to let them practice that. Because we know once they leave our door, we don't have any control over what they do. And so I think that's another entry point is like, you know, what do you believe? And how does that connect to your practice? And then that third piece is that idea of like, okay, does the research support that belief and that practice? We know there's not a lot of research that supports somebody talking at somebody for 45 minutes, telling them what they should learn. We know that when meaning is constructed, the learner retains it better. Absolutely. And, and now you're making me think so much about culturally sustainable pedagogy and anti-racist and anti-bias instruction and the ways in which bringing together tech sets can help students engage in real issues in the world right now and develop a deeper understanding for themselves. Because as you said, we're not going to learn from listening. We're going to learn from reading and processing and thinking. And this opportunity that we have right now seems like we, we shouldn't pass it up. Yeah. I, you know, and years ago I realized there was a pattern in schools that I was seeing the, you know, AP and international baccalaureate kids, they were getting to have these rich conversations and they were getting to re read and write. And then when I would observe essentials classrooms, which was, you know, for our striving readers and writers, um, they were just sitting and copying or sitting and getting. And of course we know from some of the data that so often BIPOC kids are, are, are populating those classes way more than white kids and thinking about, okay, why is that? And does it go back to trust? Do we trust our kids to do the work? And I think something that IB and AP teachers have, have, you know, a little bit of an advantage on is that those kids are often grade driven. And so they'll be compliant, but some of that has changed now as well. And so, you know, are we giving kids something worthy to think about um, 
and to read and to write. And, and, you know, I remember years and years ago, somebody asked Nancy Atwell a question and said, okay, what do I do if kids won't read? And she looked at this teacher with this, this, like, just this mystified look. And she said, well, why wouldn't kids read if you're giving them good things to read? Like she was just perplexed by that question. And I'm thinking, okay, if I've dedicated my life to teaching my discipline or my grade level, like I'd love it. I, 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 I want to share it with everybody. So I better find some stuff that's compelling for them to dig into and then trust them, trust them to get to, to do it. Absolutely. Wow, Chris, this has been a powerful conversation and you've left us with so much to think about. Um, I just love, love listening to you think aloud about unit planning and using anchor text and creating that hub. I mean, just your energy is absolutely contagious. So as we wrap up today, what is your call to action? What do you want to share with everyone <laughs> as we, as we wrap up? Vote. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I would like to call everybody to action. I would, I, you know, that's a great question. I haven't thought about that right now. I think this idea of cutting everybody some slack, especially our kids, they're, they're hearing from everywhere that they're not, that they're not good enough. They're not doing enough. And I think teachers are hearing they're not good enough. They're not doing enough. And I think giving, giving people around us that grace to, to just be for right now, to, to go back to some of the simplicity that we had, um, trusting kids to just read, trusting ourselves to have a minute to breathe. Um, so I guess that call to action in a very wordy way is just giving each other grace and, and trusting each other that we're doing the best we can for our, for our kids and for our colleagues. Thank you, Chris. Michelle, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. 